This is the Frog for Life podcast. I'm your host, Rob Berline. But the one activity that actually set me on my career path was um, happened at the end of my junior year when I applied to be the advertising manager for the Daily Skiff. That is the voice of Patricia Doherty Meridian from the TCU class of 1982. Patricia will talk about her career as the CEO of the Henry Ford Museum. She'll talk about how TCU led her to that position and the great groundbreaking things that the museum is doing before the pandemic, during the pandemic, and leading now through the pandemic. And hello, and we are welcomed today by a very special guest. Join us from all the way from Detroit, Michigan. It is... Patricia Doherty Meridian from the class, TCU class of 1982. Thank you so much for joining us today, Patricia. Hey, Rob. So happy to be here. Thank you. Before we get into all the great things that you're doing uh, in Detroit now and uh, how you've made your career well known, we're going to go to why you're joining us on this content, this podcast, because you were a TCU student. So tell us, why did you decide to come to TCU as a student? So, you know, I was a transfer student to TCU, and I had my first two years in a, a, a small liberal arts uh, girls' college. At the time, it was a girls' college called Marymount in Virginia. My older sister had gone to TCU or was at TCU, and I visited her for spring break and absolutely fell in love with the campus and the students and the people. And uh, when I did a little further research into what kind of majors they offered, I thought it would be a perfect place to transfer and continue my, my education and get my four-year degree. Well, and I love, I love the size. The size is perfect. Uh, you know, it, it just was so much. It wasn't a big like a state school or a public university. And uh, the school I had come from only had about 1,200 students. So it was just perfect for me. So you come to TCU and, and you find out that everything is not like it is on spring break. There's more to there. Uh, <laughs> there's more to uh, just than coming to TCU on vacation. Although we'd like to think that TCU is a four year vacation. There is work that gets involved. Uh, so tell us about your student experience. What activities did you get involved in? How were the classes? How did the actual student experience match up to kind of the idea you had in your mind? I, you know what? The student experience was, it was fantastic. Um, the The biggest thing for me were, were the people. Um, so friendly and very, uh, you know, focused. So so interested in not just being educated, but also in some of the other aspects. I, I really liked the Christian experience there as well because uh, I grew up Catholic, pretty strict Catholic, and um, getting to understand a little bit of a, a different angle to the Christian experience was important to me. So I, I met um, uh, kids that were in Young Life and a variety of other programs and, and started to get a new perspective on that, which was very helpful to me and has carried, carried through with me in my life. Um, I did a lot of clubs, a lot of clubs. I can't remember all of them, but, but the one activity that actually set me on my career path was um, happened at the end of my junior year when I applied to be the advertising manager for the Daily Skiff. 
And do you still have the daily skiff? Uh, it has now taken different um, iterations. It's TCU 360. They're a whole media conglomerate with a TV show and everything oh, involved. Wow. Oh, yes. they have. Well, that, that would have been right up my alley today, too. But I just, I, I you know, yes, I, I was a commercial art major. And the commercial is the important part of that word there, that degree for me, because what I was really learning about um, was partially about journalism. So I took a lot of the journalism classes. And when I learned about the, the skiff, I applied for the advertising manager position and got it. And I spent my entire summer between junior and senior year and then my entire senior year um, doing the overseeing the, the ad sales, uh, which are way different than what it's like today. But um, not only did I do the ad sales, but I also got to lay out the ads. And I had a staff of about five other students who were also selling the ads. And we got commission. I got full scholarship for that. Um, it was, it was, it set my career path totally on a track that um, continues today. So commercial art, for those of us that aren't familiar, is that, is that you're, you used to love art? Is it the commercial what was commercial art and how did the advertisement, um, how did that really play into, into that? Right. So for me as a, as a high school student, I, I was a really, I, I did very well academically always in my career, but I, I loved and was passionate about art and drawing. I was, I can draw, I could, I could do different things and I was very creative. Um, so I thought a, a major in art in the commercial art would be, uh, an interesting career path for me. I, I didn't know a lot about it. And today you can, uh, you know, young people have their cell phones and they, they're just much more sophisticated in, in understanding the world and how it, how it all falls together. I had to learn that from, from, from my major and from being in it. Um, and I, I just started to get a sense for marketing and sales. And uh, yes, there was an art aspect to it because at the time, you didn't have computers and computer graphics and all that. I mean, there were computers, but we weren't using them for that kind of work. Um, and so, so we were doing it all by hand and had to lay out ads and had to design them and, and think about what it would be to sell a product or how you sell a product. And so there was a lot of hands-on experience. But what really started um, interesting me a lot is that whole idea of, of connecting a product to a consumer. So the whole idea of marketing something in, in a way that, that helps a person identify what it is that they might need. So I, I loved that and I loved that process. And so that was enhanced by the experiences at the Daily Skip. And, and I will say also, uh, I had a summer internship in an insurance agency um, between, I guess it might've been between my sophomore and junior year and I was working with all the agents and processing claims and doing administrative things, but I could see how a business was being run. And I started to get very interested in business. And I think I thought at the time, if I, if I change majors now, I'll have to continue on going to school for another two years. And I loved working so much that I decided to keep my major, but get all of my experience in the business and marketing world. And, and that's, that was that's how I kind of continued to progress along when I got out of college and in my career. So unfortunately, everyone 
it's viewed as fortunately and unfortunately when, when a TCU student graduates. Fortunately, they don't have to do class anymore. Unfortunately, they get to leave the safe haven, some would say, of uh, the TCU yeah. community. So upon being pushed out of the nest, what? How did your how did your career path take shape? Well, I, I had a lot of advice from from um, the head of the journalism department at the time was a real inspiration to me. Her name was Dr. Doug Newsom, and uh, she gave me a lot of good career advice. Also, the some of the the designers I was working with, and at the time when I was graduating, it was hard to get jobs. It was a recession. It was hard. And people were telling us, you know, take whatever you can get. So we didn't really have the luxury of being real picky. I ended up um, applying because of my sales experience, applying for um, advertising sales positions. And I landed one at a radio station. And uh, really, that, that started my career path going. I then moved on to print sales with a newspaper. And uh, when I, I ended up meeting my my future husband, who lived in Michigan, and uh, through through that, I moved to Michigan and landed what I would say was my, my major career move job, which was uh, in, in the shopping center world. I went to a company called the Taubman Company, and I was a marketing director for one of their properties. And boy, talk about, it was like getting an MBA uh, in you know, in the workplace, because <laughs> it was about it, you know, I, yes, I was marketing a property, but we, we had metrics and business analysis and strategic planning and communications plans and working with our corporate office. And I did that for a couple of years and was invited to be into the corporate office as they, as the head uh, uh, director of, of marketing overseeing a region. And from that, I just continued to grow my career. And so I, I, um, Let's see, I was there for 13 years before I was hired to go to the museum. So I really, I, I had a bunch of stepping stone jobs in, in ad sales and in marketing. And then I moved on to, to Taubman for 13 years and then to the Henry Ford where I am now. And so how did the Henry Ford opportunity come about? Well, that's interesting. I was on a board and I decided at the time, I decided... I was on the tourism, travel and tourism board, the Convention and Visitors Bureau board in Detroit, which is a very large Convention and Visitors Bureau. And I, I met a lot of people. And on that, I was on the executive board. And the former president of the Henry Ford was on that board. And we, uh, I, I decided it was time to make a move. I loved my career at the Taubman Company. Uh, absolutely loved it. Learned so much. Um, but I thought I'm either going to do you know, do one more thing or two more things in my life and in my career, or I'm going to stay in shopping centers. And so I decided to try and explore what opportunities would be out there. So I started to connect community that I knew and some of the board members that I knew on that board. And uh, that one, one conversation led to the next. And I don't know, within six months or so, I decided to make the move. And I was hired at the Henry Ford to be a, a vice president overseeing a whole group of departments, um, and and so that that was a big step up for me, and uh, a little bit frightening because I was going into unknown territory, going from a corporate, for-profit, public uh, company to a not-for-profit cultural entity. So it was a big move. It was a very conscious decision. 
Well, eventually you become the uh, the, uh, first female CEO of the Henry Ford in its history. So what added challenges did that bring? Well, uh, when, you know, it's kind of like the buck stops here, you know, you know that all of the weight of the organization and all the different components of it are on your shoulders. And uh, for the listeners who may not be familiar with the Henry Ford, we are a a very large, uh, one of the largest cultural destinations in the in the country. Uh, We're considered an American history museum, but we have a, a we're a national historic landmark. We have a 250 acre campus and six venues are part of our campus. So we have the the largest history museum uh, focused on innovation. So it's the Henry Ford Museum of American Innovation is the museum. We have an outdoor complex with 83 historic structures that were moved there and and saved by Henry Ford uh, for people to learn from and that's Greenfield Village. Uh, And in that village we have Thomas Edison's Menlo Park Laboratory. We have the Wright Brothers Cycle Shop, Abraham Lincoln's Courthouse, a variety, uh, many historic structures that have real American history and lessons in innovation and ingenuity and resourcefulness that are connected to them. We also have a research center that has the largest archive of, of um, American, American documents, so things that relate to innovation manufacturing, um, design. We have all the Sears and Robux catalogs. I mean, it's just a huge archive of 25 million uh, two-dimensional documents. Uh, We have a a large giant screen theater. We run, we're not part of Ford Motor Company, but we have the same founder, but we're a private nonprofit. But we partner with Ford to run a visitor center at the Ford Rouge Manufacturing Complex which is we call the Ford Rouge factory tour. So you can see an F-150 being assembled right on the factory floor. It's pretty exciting. And then, and then we have a high school on our campus. So we run a uh, 540 student ninth through 12th grade high school right on our campus. So the kids are going to school in the museum and on the grounds and using our collections. We have over a million three-dimensional artifacts that are uh, in most cases, one of a kind. And uh, we use those to tell the stories of innovation and, and American ingenuity and resourcefulness and try our best to get people excited and inspired about what they could accomplish in the future. So even though we're his- history, we're really, I always say we're a museum about the future um, because we, we try and make uh, the future better by learning about the lessons of the past. So um, that that is that that's really exciting to me. So being the first female executive and and leader of that the institution um, was was a little daunting, but I, you know I had been there for five years as a vice president and I was I was I was ready ready for the move. So um, I don't think being female had any played any any special role um, in in how how I lead the institution and. Certainly, we have a, a board, and our, our trustees are extremely engaged and very, very supportive. Uh, I became CEO in 2005, so I've been doing it for over 16 years now, and um, I just, I love it. I love it so much because of the impact we make on, on young people and, and on people in general, but um, we can really help young people 
shift their thinking on something and become really passionate about something and it curious about something and it, it can change lives. And you talk about you're a museum of innovation and I think that that perfectly encapsulates what what you've done since you've been there. Can you talk about how you know when you got there and you really had this vision to rebrand and it's not just a, a history museum you have all these other aspects. What was kind of the reaction to when you had this this grand vision and then how did you get buy-in from other constituents to to help complete the the multi-million dollar project to help it be what it is today? Well, so any, any, I think any visionary idea has to start with a plan and has to start with analysis and research and you have to really do your homework and, and know what you're doing. And rebranding is, you know, a lot of people think rebranding is changing your colors and putting a new logo on something. Branding is really just telling your story and, and everybody telling the same story. And so when I got there, you know, there were, we were, we were, we were, adding the Ford Rouge factory tour. We were, we just had opened the high school. We had a large screen theater and we were really struggling with how to tell our story. What is the story? You know, for years it was only the museum and the village. And then we were adding these different venues and creating a, a much larger opportunity to inspire people and, and to educate people. And so we started to collect all the information that was out there on us, whether it was in a press release, whether it was in a, fundraising document, a, a proposal for a grant. Um, how are we talking about ourselves? What, do, what story are we telling? And it became pretty clear that we needed to get everybody on the same page. And, and so just going through that process, process of analysis and investigation and, and you know, including the team in it, it was a team effort, um, having it be led from the top and the vision of it from the top made, makes a big difference too. Um, even though all the ideas bubble up from all aspects of the organization and all places from the organization, it has to be supported in an initiative that's supported by the leaders and by the board. And we had, we had that buy-in, and uh, we really started to work and put it together. We hired an outside consultant to work with us, and, and we landed on you know, the story of the Henry Ford and what is our story, what is our history, and how does that inspire a better future? And, and that, it, it became, uh, it, you know, it's something we did early on. We did it in 2003. I think we, we launched it. We started it in 2000, 2001. It took us a couple of years to really um, hone it. And we're continuously improving and um, updating it as, as the story unfolds. And some of the exhibits that you had that you touch on, like Lincoln's Courthouse, um, you had the first auto racing exhibit where people could see race cars, um, the, the Lillian Schwartz connect collection that had some of the first computer-generated art. Uh, when people think of the Henry Ford, they may not be surprised to hear about the race cars, but they're not thinking that they're going to go there to find Lincoln's Courthouse and computer-generated art. So where do you come up with the ideas to, to bring such a wide collection of innovation to your, to your organization? Well, we have the, you know, the founding by our, our founder, Henry Ford, was an avid collector at the time in the, in the teens and 20s, the 19-teens and 20s. You know, people were, were out, it was kind of out with the old and with the new, but Henry Ford was fascinated and enamored with the idea of progress in America and how how we learn from the past to make a better future. And so he started collecting things that people were throwing out. 
so, you know, as we advanced as a society and became more uh, industrialized, he was collecting the, the steam engines and the trains and the cars of the past, not just Fords. And he was collecting power uh, machinery and equipment. And he started to restore. He's one of the first people to really look at restoring historic structures. And in order to save them from demolition, he would move them to Greenfield Village. And, and so uh, this, this kind of eclectic collection of, of this one man's idea started to take shape. The whole institution was founded as a school because he believed that young people should have immersive, engaging experiences where they can take things apart and put them back together and learn about them. And that's what our that's what we were founded on. We eventually turned into a museum because our collections were so vast, but we've always had at our roots this idea of education and immersive and engaging learning. So we use that as our foundation for how we collect. We're still a collecting institution. We have a team of a dozen curators who are so experienced and knowledgeable in our collections. We have six collecting categories that we focus on and we make a collection plan. Like I said, any good, any good organization has a plan and what's your plan forward. And so we identify things that we should collect from today that will become important tomorrow or things that were of the recent past in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, um, 70s that document innovation in the areas of, of design and manufacturing and making things and communication and technology. I mean, those are just a few. We also collect in the area of social transformation. So we, you know, during my tenure, we've collected the Rosa Parks bus uh, where Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat. And that's become a huge uh, artifact of importance to our institution and to our visitors. So there's a lot of, a, a lot of, um, uh, strategy that goes into what we collect. And then we have to make connections. We have to locate collections. We have to find them. The Lillian Schwartz collection was a recent acquisition. And we were very, very excited to, to get it because it was complete, because uh, Lillian Schwartz was one of the first female pioneers in computer design, computer-generated design. And there's huge stories of innovation um, tucked into what she did, what she had to go through as, as a as a you know a, a young computer designer. So so we look at those stories. We have a, a great collecting committee that analyzes and assesses what it is and has to approve what we collect. Uh, so it's a it's a pretty detailed process. We follow all the the the, the appropriate and recommended guidelines of the. Um, accrediting body for for museums and so we we are really you know i think um w one of the the museums as an accredited museum they they give you policies and procedures and and suggested ways in which to do your business and to acquire and to deaccession uh, collections so we follow all those guidelines as well so um it's not just one person making a decision there are many minds and many hands that work together to make our institution what it is. And one of the big accomplishments that your curators were able to to collect a, a few years ago was the Emancipation Proclamation, and, and your organization became the first museum outside Washington, D.C. to display the Emancipation Proclamation, such an important historical document. How did, how did that come about? 
Well, and let me just say, we didn't collect it. It already is in the National Archives. We just were able to uh, display it. And uh, we, we heard that it was going to be allowed to travel. There were very strict guidelines on it. Like, it is such a rare, obviously, one of a kind. You, you couldn't have it exposed to light for a certain amount of time. But we had all the conditions um, in which to display it properly. Um, it could only be out on exhibit for 36 hours. So we, we created an opportunity to be open for 36 hours straight. And we, we had 20,000 people stream through from our community to see that um, exhibit. And it was probably, I mean, I get goosebumps just talking about it. I always say we have goosebump moments at the Henry Ford, and that's one of them. Sitting on the bus is another one for me, the Rosa Parks bus. Oh, my gosh, the, I, I never fail to get, get goosebumps. And, you know, it, people, people have very visceral emotional reactions from seeing and, and exhibiting or from being part of some of the exhibits that we have. So um, that has meaning. But that was a very exciting exhibit for us. It only lasted 36 hours, probably one of the shortest ones we've ever done. <laughs> I mean, I'm just trying to imagine the amount of security that you had to get for a 36-hour thing was such a important, uh, such an important historical worldly document. I mean, like, did the Swiss National Guard have to show up to make this happen? <laughs> we had, we did have a lot of security, and I will tell you that we worked very closely with Washington on getting it here, and um, it, there, there was a lot of security around getting it here as well, um, and rightly so. It's one of our national treasures. Um, well, more, to more current operations, obviously everyone in the world has been affected by the pandemic. Your organization, unfortunately, is no exception to that. So what were some of the biggest lessons you've learned from both a business perspective and how to deal with people, uh, both customer and employee, um, as related to the pandemic? You know, we, I, I, I always say people first, families first. Um, that, that is the only way to lead in my mind. Um, and so my first concern was that our guests, our staff, our students, all stayed healthy and safe. And so we, you know, we, we had, uh, we put, we put people first, even though we had tough decisions to make. Um, we really tried to make sure that everybody stayed healthy. Um, we, I think for at least the first six months, um, when we did have to give those, um, furloughs, you know, we paid everybody's health insurance. We did everything we can to, to make sure that, that people were, were staying healthy and safe. That was number one. But the, the lessons we learned, we learned a lot in, in teamwork. We learned a lot about ourselves in terms of our, our um, resourcefulness, our ability uh, to stay resilient. Um, we had to innovate to stay connected because we were all home for four months. And uh, that was obviously a challenge. We were fortunate that we had just installed and trained our team on uh, Teams on, on the computer. So we had already had that all in place. Um, but we, we really, we really tried hard to take care of each other and, and to um, make sure that the organization stayed whole. So we did have some really hard decisions to make, and we learned a lot of lessons about operating differently, about not, not being afraid to make changes and shifts as we, as we needed to, that there is no such thing as we've always done it this way. Therefore, you know, so <laughs> Um, we, we made a lot of changes and a lot of those changes are going to stay 
stay permanent, a permanent way of the way, and you know, the way we operate. We're still, you know, we're still dealing with the pandemic, even though it, we hope it's winding down as we, we all think it is. Um, we're still dealing with that and, and probably will for, for several more years at least in terms of the impact it had on our operation. We made some really good decisions, decisions we're proud of. Um, we learned a lot about how to, how to stay in commun- constant communication with our trustees and with our, our members and our guests to keep them informed about what we were doing, what changes they might see. Uh, we're still doing that. that, that we, I think we've always been pretty good communicators, but uh, we really needed to make sure that our, our communications were top-notch during that time period. We, we turned on a dime and put a lot of our educational products online for our, for our guests. We have, um, we have a, a, a program called Invention Convention Worldwide, where we have over 150,000 students across the United States uh, inventing, making inventions and doing a, a we, we host a national inventing competition called Invention Convention Worldwide. And so these students compete locally, regionally, and then in their state and the winners come to the Henry Ford. We had to, it was scheduled to be in June, early June of, of 2020. And when we closed, actually it's two year anniversary it was yesterday when we closed the museum for four months and we had to make the decision pretty quickly to take that program virtual. And we were very successful in doing that. And we, we had almost the same number of kids inventing virtually and competing virtually. Uh, we did it two years virtual. We're happy to say that this year we're going to um, bring it back to in-person. Uh, we also did our first globals competition because we could do that virtual as well. So we, we ended up um, really enhancing our ability to provide uh, educational products and materials and, and make them available to parents and teachers. And, and that was, uh, that was really helpful. And, and our first, our first um, new educational endeavor directed specifically to educators called InHub, I-N-Hub, um, is, is now a new, a new site that we launched during the pandemic. And that will be uh, ongoing now. It's our new, it's almost like our virtual venue for education. Uh, so we've got that going on. And then I don't, I don't know if you're aware, but we have a television show. It's in its eighth season. It's on CBS on Saturday mornings. Um, it's geared towards young families and young youngsters. Um, and, and that has eight seasons. We've been doing it for eight years. A season is a year for educational programming. It's called the Henry Ford's Innovation Nation. And it is uh one of the uh, one of the top awarded uh, TV shows and, and best watched TV shows in the education segment. So we were able to keep that going during the pandemic, and so you know we were we were fortunate about that you know to be able to do that. So we learned a lot about what we could do, even though we weren't open. <laughs> and then once it opened, we had to learn a lot about reopening things because when everything just stops. You know, then you have to get it all back in gear and we've lost a lot of team members. And so we still have, you know, we have about five or six restaurants on our campus. Not all of them are open yet um, because we're still trying to figure out the staffing and how to bring people back. Um, the, the key ones are open, of course, and our venues are open now and they've been open since summer of 2020. But, but that closure really had an impact on us and, and those lessons continue. 
So when I hear you speak, I'm just thinking of all the different aspects of of modern culture that, that you impact. Obviously, your education, everyone talks about how students have to learn on Zoom. Your business, your restaurants, their supply chain, customers yes. in terms of how people can visit. I mean, you touch every single aspect pretty much of American culture and, and how COVID's impacted that. I mean, you you guys could be the, the model for how you want to operate in any kind of any kind of uh, venue. We, we have a very complex operation. Like I said, we have restaurants, we have retail, we have a large screen theater, we have a high school, we have, you know, we have venues, we sell tickets to things. We have a lot of special events and after hours activities. Uh, so there's, there is a lot that we do and we have a, a large team that, that needs to, you know, completely be integrated and coordinated and work together um, you can't work in silos at our organization. It's, it really is uh, a team effort and a collaborative one. And so which, uh, on a day-to-day, which would you say is kind of your, do you have one aspect of the multi-silos that, that kind of you over, you kind of touch the most, or is it just a, a day-to-day in terms of, you know, whatever issue or need comes up, that's the issue you're going to deal with on that day? Well, I've, I've worked there for so long and my, my staff, my, my direct reports, my team, the executive team oversees every aspect of the organization. And so I, I have opportunity to, to understand and touch on all of it, but I, I know they are the experts. We have experts on our team. I just oversee, I, I'm sort of a, I really think my, my skill set is more about leadership and communication and strategy and vision um, and and my one of my main functions is fundraising, obviously. Um, but but that vision and strategy is is set at the top. We know where we're going. We have plans. We're constantly planning in advance. Um, you know, for the two years of the pandemic, we had to really just take it on a year by year basis. But now we're back to planning well into the future. Um, we're looking towards our hundred year anniversary, which will be in uh, fall of 2029. So now we're, we're talking very actively engaged in what, what are we going to look like then? What, what are the things that we want to do? And we have big ideas. I mean, my, my business, our business philosophy is think big, work smart, and grow wisely. And I always talk about the balance um, and the importance of the balance of culture, commerce, and community. I mean, we are first and foremost, a mission-driven nonprofit organization with an educational mission and, and focus. Um, but we also are a business and we have to run like a business. And we have to be smart about how we run as a business. Uh, fiscal responsibility and our fiduciary responsibilities are, are of the utmost, utmost importance. Um, and we're, we're community. Uh, we're all about looking outwards. How can we help the community how can we help be a, a problem solver in the world today? How can we bring these lessons of innovation to the forefront and, and make them inspiring and engaging and give people the curiosity they need to, to, go, to go forward, tell the stories of people, less about artifacts, more about people. It really is, when it comes to, to the Henry Ford, I think it's people first, um, not just our staff and our guests, but the stories of people. Um, that's, that's what makes us tick. And you talk about being a visionary and some of your, your big ideas as we, you hope we, we're transitioning out of this pandemic. 
what are some of the future plans that the Henry Ford uh, visitors can look forward to in, in any section, be it restaurant, education, the museum? Um, what are some of those big plans that you can kind of let us in on? Well, the, well, there's a lot. You know, we in Greenfield Village, we have four working farms um, and a lot of initiatives around food. Some of our collections, um, one of our greatest collections, the greatest uh, collection of, of, of agricultural equipment in the world American agriculture uh, equipment and and recipes and kitchen utensils is in the Henry Ford. We show that we showcase that those skills throughout Greenfield Village and in the museum. And uh, we have a lot of things in the in the plans for edible education um, and helping to educate our our students. And so there'll be some transformations over the next few years uh, that people in visiting Greenfield Village in particular will see. We just built. Uh, rebuilt something that we've had uh, in storage for over 20 years, we were able to save and collect um, the 1860s Detroit Central Farmer's Market. And it, it's the only, that we can tell, the only surviving uh, steel-based steel uh, Victorian-style farmer's market. And that, that we reconstructed, raised all the funds for that and reconstructed it during the pandemic, actually, in Greenfield Village. It will open this spring. Um, so we're pretty excited about the opportunities for foodways in the future. We're going to try and open up a new restaurant in Greenfield Village. Um, always we have exhibits in the works and in and, and plans. We bring in at least two to three temporary exhibitions into the museum a year and rotate them in and out. Um, and so there's a lot of plans in the works for, for, for different exhibits. Right now we have an Apollo exhibit, which is pretty exciting. Uh, we'll make some more permanent exhibitions as the funds get raised. Um, so there's there's a pretty pretty bright future. We're working on a lot of educational initiatives and potentially in a new education uh, building that would be completely outfitted with all the technology. But these are always there's always plans. But fundraising is what drives our. We we try and be fiscally responsible. As I mentioned, we don't build anything until we raise the funds. So we're always uh, fundraising against against our plans, against that mission and vision and and always trying to uh, to present the the best educational opportunities for our guests. And you talk about all the, the great success that the Henry Ford's had, you've had in your career. How do you believe your time at TCU uh, helped prepare you for the business success you, you've experienced? You know, there's, there's no question that TCU was a, a great university for preparing people for, for that. And I, I have always thought that, which is why I wanted my daughter to go there so much because I knew it would be a terrific education and a good a good springboard for for her, uh, as it was for me, and for my sister. There were there we have a little family tradition of TCU, so um, I, I think the, the 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 values that TCU has, the educational uh, quality. I saw in a lot of the professors that I had just this passion, passion for education and passion for learning and, and a passion for helping students find their way and find something. You know, I didn't, I didn't choose to be a lawyer or a doctor, something that I chose uh, more of a business marketing path that um, was <laughs> with an art education. And, and that liberal arts um, really, I think it enhances your ability to, uh, think, and and that's that was an important part of of what TCU gave me. And we'll we'll end with this. 
throughout your time at TCU and, and things you've experienced since graduation, what would you say your favorite TCU memory is? So I am not going to answer that question with a memory. I'm going to answer it with, um, again, something that I believe strongly in, and that's people. I have um, four dear, dear, dear TCU college friends. Uh, we get together. We try every year, but sometimes, and again, during the pandemic, it's been more a couple years here and there. Um, my favorite times were, were with with my friends and my and the people of, of TCU. Uh, we have a, a little group that we, it, it's just five of us. We have our TCU BFFs, our little um, chat that we have. Um, we, we, we talk a lot. We support each other. Um, that lives on in us. And, and that was an important aspect of my education was meeting these wonderful friends and, and keeping that connection alive. So um, that really is time with them, what we did, you know, the football games, all of that, that, that all, it kind of all blends together to make the one big experience. But the lasting thing is the friendships. And that is Patricia Doherty Moradian. She has been so we can't thank you enough for all the great stories you've shared with us. The the Henry Ford, if you're you want to take a summer trip to Detroit or you live in the region, I, I would definitely say any TCU alum needs to put that on their their to do list this summer. Is hopefully the everything is getting safe safer and it's it's good for everyone to to get back and venture out in the world. Is is it sounds like we could spend like six more hours just talking about all the great things you're doing at that with the organization. So all, everyone's welcome. We would love to see any TCU alum or current student or faculty member. Please come. Uh, there's a lot to do in Detroit, a lot to do in Detroit. And uh, we have great food, great places to visit, really great hotels, lots of, lots of things to do. So make it a destination. We'll roll out the red carpet at the Henry Ford. Or the purple carpet, whichever your whichever your we way goes. We will roll out a purple carpet. Yes, I should have said that. That's brilliant, Rob. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Frog for Life podcast. If you or a friend or family member would like to get in touch with us to share your story, please contact us on social media on Twitter and Instagram at TCU Alumni. We look forward to sharing our next story of how TCU alumni are changing the world.